We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Six podcast. We are proudly a part of the Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family. I'm your host, Adam McGee. To celebrate the 2022 Hall of Fame enshrinements, we've got something a little bit different for this episode. One of three figures of Bucks Connections who will finally get his chance, his day in the sun, and make it into the Hall of Fame on Saturday is the first coach to Milwaukee Bucks one of two coaches to win an NBA championship for the Milwaukee Bucks, Larry Costello. To celebrate Costello, to maybe open things up a little bit further, to spread the word just about just how special he was as a coach, how important a figure he was in Milwaukee Bucks history, my esteemed co-host and colleague Jordan Tresky has been working on a very special audio essay on Costello's story for quite some time. You'll hear from Jordan in his own words. He's going to take you through that and then stick around after as Jordan and I will talk some more about everything you hear in there about Costello's place in books history and also about Del Harris and George Carl who are also going to be inducted this weekend. It's easy to characterize Larry Costello as a man lost to time. He first entered the NBA when there was no shot clock he played and coached when there was no three-point line. 
He's often described as the last two-handed set shooter the league ever saw. Now nearing 21 years since his death, Larry Costello will be inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame this weekend. Costello had made a name for himself with his hard work, tenacity, and blazing speed. You couldn't help but notice him on the court thanks to his two-handed set shot that was deadly from long range. Bob Cousy called Costello the toughest guard to defend because he could hit from outside and was able to breeze through the defense. Jerry West once said Costello is the toughest to go up against because the Lakers legend struggled with the New York native pounding him up and down the floor. Costello was as dedicated as any player could be. A two-year stint serving in the military helped him sharpen his skills while overseas in Germany. He lifted weights and did rigorous workout routines to keep in shape during the offseason, long before there was a playbook for that kind of thing. That dedication earned Costello six All-Star appearances and one All-NBA nod throughout his career. By the time the 76ers became a championship contender when they traded for Will Chamberlain, the best years of Costello's playing career were behind him. During the days when players were expected to play 48 minutes of an NBA game, Costello pushed himself beyond the point of playing through injury. He suffered countless muscle injuries and broken bones, and his body was struggling to hold together as he got older. And here Costello was, trying to fight through a hamstring injury that had robbed him of his speed and elusiveness. The 76ers ran into the scene roller that was the Boston Celtics during the 1965 Eastern Conference Finals, losing in seven games. Costello wanted to go out a winner that year, but he went into his first retirement knowing he could make an impact coaching high school ball near his hometown of Manoa, New York. He still played in a semi-pro league, playing only in home games for the Wilkes-Barre Barons of the Eastern Basketball League. But just like 10 years earlier, when he considered attending dental school at the University of Buffalo over beginning his pro basketball journey in Philadelphia, Costello couldn't remain away from the NBA for very long. Costello was lured back to the 76ers in 1966, and they promptly went on to win a then-league-high 68 games, a record that was smashed five seasons later by the Los Angeles Lakers. Those 76ers went on to defeat the Boston Celtics during what was Bill Russell's first year as a player head coach and put an end to an eight-year dynasty. The 76ers won their first title in Philadelphia by beating the San Francisco Warriors in the 1967 NBA Finals. For his part, though, Costello watched from the sidelines. He had torn ligaments in his knee earlier in the season, but still managed to somehow play brief minutes during the 76ers' playoff run. Costello was finally a winner, but he didn't quit. He was the NBA's oldest active player at 36 years old for the 1967-68 season, but he wouldn't see the year out. On December 11, 1967, playing the waning moments of a game that ended in a 76ers win, Costello tore his Achilles tendon. That didn't matter to him, though. What mattered to him was stopping a fast break from the Baltimore Bullets. Costello struggled getting back up after tearing his Achilles as Bullets players ran past him. 76ers head coach Alex Hannum screamed for Costello to stay down and for the game to be stopped. Costello recalled that trying to get up from his torn Achilles felt, quote, like he was wearing a high heel shoe on his left foot, end quote. That went on to be the lasting image of Costello's 13-year playing career. Larry Costello coached just as he played. He was a student of the game and he was more than willing to impart his wisdom on anyone that went to his basketball camps or coaching clinics. 
After his Achilles injury, he wanted to be the head coach of his alma mater at Niagara University. The school went in a different direction though, much to Costello's dismay. Just a few months later, before they even had a name, Costello was introduced as the first head coach of a new expansion NBA team in Milwaukee. During that introductory press conference, Costello vowed to do things the NBA had not seen before. Surely though, Costello couldn't imagine coaching the likes of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson on the way to an NBA title three years after the Bucks were born. It's a feat that remains unparalleled in NBA history and even in the four largest sports in North America. The Bucks clearly had major star power, but it was Costello that served as the engine to the team's smashing success. He prepared for every possible action and reaction to everything that he thought would happen on the floor. He preached perfection and execution and his long, arduous practices weren't for the faint of heart. Costello was notorious for his grueling film sessions, so much so that Oscar Robertson recalled opposing players telling him they were glad that they weren't playing Milwaukee. If he were to coach any other way though, it wouldn't have been the Larry Costello way. That famed attention to detail made it ironic that the biggest play in Costello's coaching career was born out of complete chaos. When the Bucks won game six of the 1974 finals in double overtime, thanks to Abdul-Jabbar's infamous skyhook shot over Henry Finkel, no players on the floor could recount what play Costello called in the huddle. Costello saw the league changing yet again when he was a coach. His highly successful Bucks teams were predominantly black, and it was Abdul-Jabbar and Robertson who fought for the advancement of their people, for civil rights, and for the rights of NBA players at the time. Robertson, in particular, was the face of the NBA's Players Association, and he fought for the security of players when the NBA and the ABA sought to merge when he arrived in Milwaukee. Costello was a great supporter of his players and their causes, and also an advocate for anything that would spread the gospel of basketball. That included accompanying his star players on a three-week off-season trip to Africa to conduct clinics. One thing that Costello couldn't get behind, though, was the increasing notion that some players were becoming enamored with the trappings of the NBA lifestyle, rather than simply playing for their love of the game itself. As a player, Costello once asked for a $500 raise from Syracuse Nationals owner, Danny Biazzoni, who rejected his pleas over and over again. But when the Syracuse owner finally gave in to Costello, as the 1960-61 season approached, Costello admitted that he felt guilty for asking for the raise in the first place. As the 1970s went on, there was really no more glory to be gained for Costello. He'd won two NBA championships and been in the NBA for over two decades as a player and coach. Age had finally caught up to those Bucks teams. Over the 12 months after the Bucks had agonizingly lost to the Celtics in seven games in the 1974 finals, Oscar Robertson had retired and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was traded to the Los Angeles Lakers, completely fracturing what was left of the Bucks from that era. On November 23rd, 1976, the only coach the Milwaukee Bucks had known to that point, resigned from his post. Costello resurfaced as head coach of the Chicago Bulls in the 1978-79 season, but he resigned midway through the year with a 20-36 record. He remained interested in any opportunities in the NBA, but the call never came. His reputation of being a workaholic, old-school coach preceded him as salaries grew higher and the players were gaining more power at the bargaining table. That left Costello to navigate uncharted waters as the 70s became the 80s. He returned to the site of his former glory to coach the Milwaukee Doe's, who had played in the first women's professional basketball game in the country, in the Women's Basketball League. 
Costell would later learn that the Doe's were a sinking ship and financial difficulties led to his resignation before the end of the 1979-80 season. From there, Costell went back to his central New York roots to coach at Utica College. Over six seasons there, Utica operated as an independent team and was a small school in Division I after jumping up from Division Three. While Costello is no stranger to Herculean tasks, he compiled a 64-94 and record and left in 1987, just as the school sought to go back down to Division Three once again. After more than a year battling cancer, Larry Costello died on December 13, 2001. At that time, his body of work spoke for itself. He was a basketball legend. And yet, the fanfare that he should have lived to enjoy would only start to arrive much later. So much of Costello's story, of what little is told today, is that he was in the background. Largely, no one thinks Costello when the greatness of that 1970-71 Bucks team comes up in conversations. You probably think of Abdul-Jabbar, Robertson, Dandridge, John McLaughlin, Greg Smith. You won't find Cassell's name hanging the rafters of either the Wells Fargo Center or Pfizer Forum. You'll see the banners for titles he helped win for both franchises. Probably doesn't help that Costello's successor in Milwaukee, Don Nelson, still holds the franchise mark and wins. Yet the results speak for themselves. One NBA championship and two trips to the NBA Finals throughout his eight-plus years in Milwaukee. To this day, no Bucks coach has matched that success. Costello's Bucks teams from 1970 to 1973 all won 60 or more games in three straight seasons, becoming the first team in NBA history to do so. When Costello resigned from his post as Bucks head coach, he's one of five head coaches to have won more than 400 regular season games. If there is one place where the weight of Costello's entry into the hall can be felt, look no further than Manoa. As a player and as a coach, Costello always made sure to note that he came from Manoa, a town of 3,000 people. He was born there 18 years after the town became incorporated. And now, when you enter Manoa, you are greeted with two signs. The first is a welcome sign, just as you would see entering any city, with the numbers 1913 atop of it. The second sign says, birthplace of two-time NBA champion and Hall of Famer, Larry Ronnie Costello. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's my pleasure and a privilege to be joined by our resident storyteller, Suitsayer. I hear he's available for if anyone needs like bedtime stories read to their kids. Jordan, Jordan Tresky, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, I'm very much I'm basking in the aftermath of your your wonderful audio essay on Larry Costello. It's something that uh, for the listeners, Jordan has been spending a few weeks working on fine tuning. Uh, it's something that as we've revealed before look there's been a lot of work on that era of books history and um, that is only scratching the surface on Larry Costello and stuff that we will get to at some point Um, but part of the reason as I think we've talked before that Jordan and I have decided we are we are looking to make a, a documentary of that era of books history and really to just talk more about not just the first great team in franchise history, but what is also essentially very close to the first team in franchise history is so much of the stories go overlooked, um, are undertold, or just kind of dismissed through a modern lens, which doesn't accurately reflect how things were for all the individuals at the time. And across that team, whether it's players, whether it's coaches, there are, fascinating individual stories and the ups and downs of it and Costello was someone who from a very early stage and us talking about that we wanted we wanted to honor we wanted to talk about we wanted to really just make more books fans aware of it for books fans who just have a passing knowledge of oh that's the name of the guy who was the coach when they won their first championship or for people who don't know him at all to be able to pull back the curtain a little bit. Part of the reason we wanted to do that was because he was not in the Hall of Fame. He was not really celebrated in any way. And thankfully, this Saturday, as you noted in your essay, Jordan, that is coming to an end. Larry Costello is being enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame alongside two other former books coaches. Del Harris will also be enshrined, as will George Carl. We'll talk a little bit more about both of those. And just the state of play generally for the books in the Hall of Fame later. But let's start with Costello, Jordan. This is long, long overdue, but not necessarily enough still would be would be the place where, where I would like to lead off with. Do you think that's a fair reflection, uh, given how much you've been reading about Larry Costello and thinking about his career and the arc of it over the past few months yes i think that's a very fair way of putting it especially because it's like 
the avenue which with which he's going into the Hall of Fame, much like I think Bob Dandridge last year, it's the contrib- contributor elements. Del so, Harris this year also going in. Del, yeah, so it's it's a way of the veterans. I think it's the veterans committee. There's so many committees with all these the stuff. It's like, oh, how do these players get in? It's not just as a player, but in Costello's case, player and coach. There's just so many different ways that he'll get inducted in the Hall of Fame, but you still have to like wrap your mind of how it actually works and the whole process. Anyway, it's it's still. I think it's in part. It. it I don't know. I, let me put my thoughts better together. <laughs> I think the fact that he's going in is a momentous achievement because there are still so many players and coaches from that time that are not in after they have died to that, you know, the casual NBA fan now probably doesn't have any idea who they are. Um, and I think ultimately that is a failing on the NBA because how we position these. Well, the NBA Different conversation because the Hall of Fame's not technically that is an true. NBA body, so that's I mean that's a part of it too. Just for clarification's sake, yeah. Just to know that. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's. I don't know. I mean, they, I feel they, like all these history discussions revolve around oh this this player is a Hall of Famer. No, he isn't. Like it's it's the it's the the first take ism effect of that's how we talk about NBA history is that is this player a Hall of Famer or not and why or why he shouldn't be. And that's largely where the conversation starts and ends. And then it's up to the franchises themselves to put these players or coaches or figures out, you know, out front and talk about it. I mean, we hear plenty about the Celtics greats, the Lakers greats, the Knicks greats. The Knicks have not been a great team for most of my lifetime. Since, but I Since hear... Larry Casale's time as books coach, with an exception <laughs> of like a brief spell in the 90s. Yeah, but the more you put that out there, the more it feels real. It's not lost to time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think, I think that's ultimately... It's separation of church and state, I guess, is how I look at the NBA, NBA's history and the Hall of Fame and what what is is it on the, the teams themselves to do it, or is it the league or yeah, you know I mean it's just this whole convoluted mess, I guess. I think it's I think it's on three parties. It's on teams. I think first and foremost. First, yeah, first and foremost. If you're not going to make sure that the key figures of your own history have a spot that is like, it's reserved for them, that it's clear that for generations to come, people know that person mattered. The fans will revere them. If you can't do that, you can't look to anyone else to do that. And I also think we've talked in previous years, um, Sidney Moncrief had to wait way too long. In that case, the books had honored him in pretty timely fashion they'd done their part. Marcus Johnson is one that we've talked a lot about, and Marcus is right on the fringes year in, year out now. He's getting close. 
maybe his case gets a second win now because the Bucks eventually retired his jersey. But I don't think he ultimately benefited from that taking so long and being so far removed from his playing days. Same with impact, Same with Dandridge. And it's not a coincidence that Marcus is now getting close in the aftermath of being retired by the Bucks. That Dandridge got in after his jersey was belatedly retired by the Bucks. So I do think there is an onus on an organization if you want the most important people to have passed through the doors of your franchise in its history to have their place preserved in the game, first and foremost, you owe it to them to do that. So it starts with the team. I also think then the onus obviously comes to the NBA and how they celebrate history. And I will generally tip my cap to the NBA. They make a real effort. Do they always do it in the best way? Was NBA 75 from start to finish as kind of perfectly designed as it could have been no but they they did that all the same they exposed fans whether they cared or not to a lot of different names and you're going to get in a level of awareness and they're going to break through in different ways and also for being like very real about this there are also simple things that come through licensing with the nba with the mbpa with the retired players association something like former players players from the 50s, 60s, the 70s, 80s, 90s, right through appearing in 2K in recent years, not to be underestimated for, you know, breaking through to different generations. A part of that comes on the NBA, the MBPA, and the Retire Players Associations to work through and be like, how do we keep people's, you know, basketball memories and their legacy alive? How do we make it into something that matters, that cares, and that it resonates, and that there's an awareness of those people get the credit they deserve? And on that, I think, to your point, the other party that I think matters in this is just the fan, is the normal everyday fan. And we'll have a lot of people who listen to us who have never really taken the time or may not be all that concerned with the books past, books history, NBA history. I hate to break it to them, though, but the reality is time waits for no man and we all get old and one day the nba history is what you're going to care about because it's going to be Giannis, it's going to be chris and you're going to be reflecting on this golden era of books basketball and crying out to people to remember it because it mattered it was as impressive as anything you've seen it was important and that's where it comes down to as you said the first takey kind of element of hall of famer yes or no and the way someone will just flippantly say, that person's not a Hall of Famer. I think this is unfortunate, and I think teams individually have the ability to, within fan bases, to do more, so this is not the case. I think for the books, though, with the way the books, honestly, it's not something we haven't talked about before, but don't really put a lot of effort into honoring legends beyond surface level. Here's a photograph, here's a video with a, like, it's not doing a whole lot. I, I think if you're in that kind of spot, when the conversation goes, Hall of Famer, yes or no, if you say no, it's not just that guy's not in the Hall of Fame, but it, it's also kind of like, that guy's going to get lost to time. And that is a, a factor in that discussion, which is like, when you're saying yes or no, is that person important? Did they do something in their era that is deserving of? Was their style of play or... Did they do something groundbreaking, whether it's a player, whether it's a coach, whatever it might be? I think the, the question for Hall of Fame, rather than it boiling down to, which it does with players in particular, 
oh, he's only got X many all-stars or was on X many all-NBA teams. It needs to be more like, can you tell the story of that era of NBA basketball without that player or without their team and without showing that that player was a key cog in it or that the coach was key to it? And that is particularly interesting with Larry Costello because you absolutely cannot do that. He still stacks up as one of the most dominant coaches in the history of the NBA in terms of winning percentage. We know the players he had at his disposal. We know part of the reason why. That's not enough reason to just kind of gloss over him and be like, oh, look at the players he had. We've seen plenty of teams that were really good players, and it doesn't work out because the coach can't make the pieces work together, can't manage the egos and the locker room and make it that whatever the dynamics can be from time to time, however anyone feels that once they get out there on the floor, everyone's pulling in the same direction. And Costello, when you look at basically 61 season, 61 season, 61 season, plus I should say with those, like at his peak, he did that in a way that very few coaches have ever achieved. He did that in taking over from day one, a franchise that had not previously existed. And in year one, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not there. Like we talk so much now about establishing a culture and building something that works. Larry Costello is the guy who more than anyone in a basketball sense, lay the groundwork for the books to become champions, for the books to get to the 74 finals, right in that very first season before Kareem is there, before Oscar is even like a, a Todd that's on the agenda. He is there. He is the bricks and mortar of what does it mean for this team to play basketball? How are we going to, how are we going to train? What are our habits going to be like? The kind of things that we talk a lot about with this version of the books, this is a team that did not exist. They could have come in and they could have been a complete shambles from the get-go and getting Kareem does not matter because Kareem would have been fleeing for brighter lights within a year, within two years. It would have been a situation where actually getting him to buy in and compete at the level he did would have been a lot more challenging. And there was a winning mentality that was built by Costello that they got there very quickly. Does it happen without Kareem, without Oscar? Of course not. But this is the like this is the case for every coach that's ever lived. Is Phil Jackson doing what he did without Jordan and Pippen or without Shaq and Kobe? No. Is Greg Popovich doing what he did without Duncan and Ginobili and Parker? Of course not. So that is the thing for me and something even you and I speaking privately earlier, we were talking about this because they'll never run coach of the year, which is truly a shambles when you look at his place in that era, how dominant the books were and that he never got that recognition. And it points to something which we still talk about to this day as in awards. And I don't know, part of the prisoner of the moment element to awards awards voting and kind of the really microscopic we're here in the here and now who should win it this year when ultimately what do those awards what do they what do they exist for they exist so that 50 years on someone could go who was the best coach in 1971 who was the best coach in Larry Costello's name is not anywhere there and that's kind of wild mm-hmm. and as you so beautifully painted for us Jordan it's this is a long, long time coming. I think it is bittersweet 
because this is coming over 20 years after his death, first and foremost. The fact that he did not get to see this himself is sad. And I think in any interviews his family have given over the years, they have been kind of pretty clear. So it did matter to him. It was not something that he never thought about. And understandably, you achieve what he achieves as a player and a coach in the game. Of course, it would enter your mind of, well, at what point is someone going to kind of talk about what I did, my contribution? When, when does my life's work get held up as this matter, this stood for something? So it's sad in its own right that he's not there to see it. And what adds to that is we're over 50 years on from his greatest accomplishments. We're over 40 years on from him finally coaching his final games in the NBA. Mm-hmm. It's not like the opportunity was not there for the Hall long before this. And I don't know, we've talked about this in previous years. Like there is something about someone getting in on contributor status, which it can it can be kind of irksome because it feels like it's a slight or it's lesser, but it's not. I'm yes. really glad this exists. This is the safety net to yep. try and do away with someone like Larry Cassell just slipping through the cracks of history altogether. Because the reality is he is Larry Castell Hall of Famer for the rest of time from Saturday onwards. There's yep. there's no it, Larry Castell Hall of Famer contributor status. That's not part of it. He's in the Hall of Fame. So that is something that although the way they come to that or that it has to come to that can be annoying. It's great that the Basketball Hall of Fame is proactive in having that exist to try and rectify these oversights. Unfortunately, I feel like the contributor status, you tend to see a lot every year. It's it's often it's too late. It is people have passed. And this is something you and I have talked about in previous years of being like, you've got to do this when guys like when it's their turn, it should be their turn. And the longer it goes on, it gets really, really difficult. I know halls of fame are just generally a, a topic of contention, more so in other sports, too, and what they yes. stand for and people debate what they mean. I like that basketball does not necessarily have the highest, highest bar. The bar is very high. I like there is not many people in the Hall of Fame, if any, where you're like, yeah, what did what did that person really do? But I I think you're better to celebrate more people than less. You know, I I think that's when it comes down to it. And if like there's a line that's being held somewhere around someone like Larry Costello, that would be wrong. That's someone who 100%. You want to tell the story of the 70s in basketball. You want to tell the story of one of the most dominant teams ever. And to be clear on that, you'll still see that to stay anytime an article comes up. Anyone, anytime someone does a podcast or a video series and they're looking at the greatest NBA teams of all time in the top five, and that's probably you know being generous and extending it to five, you are going to see the early 70s Milwaukee Bucks. And it's a testament to Costello and those players that there is possibly room that you could go one way or another on what season, depending on how heavily an outcome weighs into how you view those teams. But you cannot look at the greatest teams to ever play the game and not come across a Larry Costello team. And so for that, this feels very fitting. I'm glad for him that it's finally happened. And that means being glad for his family that they're going to see their late father finally get in, inducted into the whole thing yeah it's interesting because it's like in a more broad sense 
you look at football, there's 53 players on a roster. Baseball, it's up to 28 players on a roster, I think, currently. Basketball, it's 17, but it's really 15. So it's the sport that has the fewest players on a roster. They're more visible than any other player, really, because you just see them all the time. They're not hiding behind a helmet or a mask or, you know, whatever that, they, you know, you see in other sports. And so, like, these figures are exist beyond basketball, considering just where we are in modern basketball and, like, how athletes are marketed and what shoe contracts do they have. And you just – everything is known <laughs> about someone. And I think it's just funny to be, like, it's the sport that has the fewest players on a roster, and yet when it comes to, like, a, le- a player's legacy or what does it mean or what does it mean to this era, it's always – I don't know why basketball gets this rap of just being, like, you either super appreciate it or you, it's super dismissive. There's no in-between. And Again, that might be a social media – might be the smaller, smaller lineups, like the smaller roster size, because the disparity between your best player or your worst player, which worse isn't really the word I like using there, but you know what I mean. The variance yeah. in any given five on the floor can be so apparent, so obvious compared to if it's baseball, you know, you're not seeing all of the pieces in motion at once necessarily. Um, even yeah. in football, the same applies, you know, you could have the best defense in the league, you could have the best offense in the league. Those two things are not, they're not in tandem in the same way where people are being forced to, you know, choose one or the other. I'm only going to bat for this guy, which is yeah. something that I think comes about in basketball more readily. That's unfortunate. Yeah. And I think it's just like, I don't know, especially around these parts, <laughs> we could talk endlessly about like Packers from the 90s. I mean, Look at Leroy Butler. He had to wait a long time for him to get in the Hall of Fame. But he's been his pres- He's been on radio. He has a bunch of, you know, endorsement deals or um, all everything going on in Wisconsin. Like he is still a presence to this day, and that even exists with. I mean, the Brewers troll, you know, stroll out Robin Yount <laughs> whenever they can. Like these, these people just exist in our lifetime. You see them grow up even. Before beyond them playing and just seeing them have come back even if it's they don't live here full-time or whatever the case may be but the bucks it's just different in part maybe because of the personalities involved um i think that's certainly the case um but it's just it's i don't know do you know what the most interesting thing of that is like if we go to that 70 71 team and trust me, we're gonna we're gonna unpack all of this and all of the little details that I've just gotta skip over here in all of the detail you could hope for, or I mean that you may not hope for, but you're gonna get anyway at someday <laughs> uh, at a later date. But when you talk about the the personalities on that team and even who we see come back, like we do occasionally see Kareem back, we do occasionally see Oscar back. We have seen them back together. We've seen Bobby Dandridge there. Johnny Mack is obviously the one figure, which I think to speak to your point of other, like Johnny Mack is the guy who has the name He's, recognition from that yep. team. And it's funny, he, he developed kind of the nickname Mr. Books kind of early in his career because he was there from very, very close to the beginning. Um, 
thanks to some trade. It was trade for him, right? Expansion. Anyway, expansion draft. It was expansion draft. Yep. He gets to have that because he stayed around because he was on broadcast. And then you get one, two, three generations potentially beyond seeing him play who get to be like, oh, that's Johnny Mac. He was a legendary book. I mean, they don't necessarily know anything more than that. They don't know what position he played, what type of game he had. They don't have to. They're just like, that guy, he was a legendary book. You know, I should respect him for what he did for my team. And it, it's that is something interesting um, that I even find from coming from outside of American sports to American sports. I think, for example, in the Premier League, maybe I'm skewed by being a Manchester United fan and having supported a team with really successful periods of history. Well, Packers-esque, we'll say at yep, times. Absolutely. Where that is always an ever-present, where someone will appear and there will be a song that may not have been sung for five or ten years, but that person comes to a game and all of a sudden a whole stadium will know, okay, that's the chant for that player. And this is, you know, this person matters for this reason. To go to the, the personalities involved element, Oscar and Kareem probably didn't want, certainly didn't need to be embraced by Milwaukee in the way that they continue to be from time to time to this day, in the way that someone like Larry Casella would have. Yeah. And that is a player coach dynamic generally. And it's also representative of the time, you know, an NBA coach now. <laughs> would live a very different lifestyle and be set up for life in an entirely different way than you would have been in signing your first contract in 1968 and finishing up before the eighties. Like you're even at that point, Costello was out of the game before the players really got to enjoy the riches and before things really flipped into an entirely different dimension, which obviously comes mid to late eighties with Jordan embers of that are there from the Showtime Lakers, but Jordan, kicks it up into another gear and the whole thing takes off from there. That kind of, I don't know. That's what saddens me because if there was a guy that it would have meant most to, if there was a guy that I think the symbolism of holding up and being like, Hey, don't forget this person. The first coach in franchise history in its own right, that would be enough but this is not just the first coach in franchise history. To this point, this is still the greatest coach in franchise history. Don Nelson, more wins, higher winning percentage. Mike Budenholzer, now has a higher winning percentage. Bud could do it, but until someone at least matches Costello in getting to another finals, it takes a championship and a finals to match Larry Costello. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I don't think he's really there should just there should be a Larry Castell night every two years, if not every year. I I mean it's it's something I would like the books generally to do is team nights around the player rather than just to kind of cheaply throw things away. I don't know if that's as marketable, and maybe that's why it doesn't happen. But I think you can make that marketable. I think the Brewers have a really successful kind of way of being like, okay, let's make, let's make our team nights around history or our specific former player team really marketable. And 
<laughs> no disrespect to the Brewers, the other team I podcast about. They do not have a Larry Costello-esque figure or teams as good as his in their history to celebrate, which makes it even more kind of jarring that the books for all of the years that the franchise was in the wilderness and you needed reasons to get people in the building, people to feel good. You look at some of those 90s teams, maybe it was just a matter of the team was so good from its inception true to the late 80s that everyone was in a daze in the 90s just thinking it was going to fix itself and you didn't need to dwell in the past. And then, of course, by the 2000s, it's too late for Costello anyway. But that's something for me... Um, I love Jim Paschke and John McLaughlin, iconic voices who in their role as broadcasters were unbelievable servants to books, fans, and to the organization for a very long time. Jim and John having a banner is not undeserved in my opinion, but if broadcasters are having banners or something that is literally kind of immortalizing them, if you're getting a ceremony like that, the fact that to this day in Pfizer form, We've got these numbers up there. If you want to make the case that, oh, well, there is a banner there for Larry Cassell. It says 1971 NBA champions on it. Like, I hear it. And that's that's one of the two most important banners up there. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar also has his own banner. Oscar Robertson also has his own banner. Bob Dandridge has his. Johnny Mac. Johnny Mac has his. I, it's something that I don't think is like, a big deal. I don't think it's something that really takes a whole lot for the books. I think it's it's late, but better late than never. Even if if Costello himself can't get to see it, I think the Hall of Fame are, are writing one wrong. I, I think the book should have something that Costello was there forever. Because I know for all the mixed feelings people have had about Bud over the years, we've all seen how that's changed. He's won a championship, and we all know that everyone's going to remember Bud forever as an NBA championship winning coach. And it's not that everything bad he does he did in a lot of people's eyes in terms of decisions or things that people question get forgotten. But it is also these great moments, these great wins where you know clipboards in his hand and he's in the sidelines. And it's how how do you get that done? How do you navigate those seasons? I would find it unthinkable having lived through this era and have witnessed the greatness of it to imagine. 50 years from now, if the books, let's hope the books are still going and the NBA is still going strong, and we don't have uh, bigger things, which we always certainly will to worry about, Jordan. But if, like, Bud is just an invisible figure in books history, like, that would seem strange. That would seem wrong. Like, yeah, it may be the Yanis era, much like it was the Kareem era. But when you go through the most important people, you're really not going much further. I think, honestly, the current team and that team, um, there are obviously parallels as the only two champions of franchise history in a lot of way. There are three to four players on both teams, though, that you name immediately. And I honestly think the coach comes in in importance maybe before even the last player in both of those groups. You know, it's... Oh, yeah. I, I think it's 71, honestly, with no disrespect to John McLaughlin or Bob Dandridge. It's it's Kareem Oscar and then it's Larry Costello to me in terms of where do you look as the kind of the totem poles? What what was it that made this team take the broad success that they had? Yeah. No one does it alone. 
That is clear. I think too, I mean, again, to your point of, you mentioned before, like honoring people when they're obviously still alive, but it's just a different, there's nothing that can compare to the NBA not, talking about the NBA not being a secure avenue is totally the opposite of what we know now. But that's how it was back then. There weren't as many teams. The league was still growing. Could hardly find, I mean, the only time you could watch basketball was on one channel once a week. And now it's like, oh, there's NBA League Pass. There's you know what I mean? Like it's everything is just so prevalent, but it playing at a time when it's the forties and fifties and you may be called into the army and you can't play anymore, or I'm going to sign with an industrial team because they have, I can do something that is beyond, or I can make more money can play basketball and have a security that way. And that you set your family up for life that way. Yeah, I've got a year-round, year-round contract. They may even give me a house or somewhere to stay. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's like it just does not compare now. And there's, I don't think there's. Certainly, I think people would love to live in this time when you're paid handsomely for what you do, but there's drawbacks to every, to both ways. But I think it's just, it's more of just like seeing everything for what it is at the moment. And you got to start from somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, no, you're not going to start something and then just be like, oh, everything's a success. Would, you know, and clap your hands of it, everything like that's a problem. And it's like, oh, that's whatever. I just think it took a long time for the NBA to really find its footing. The fact that we're talking about like the 80s for when it, you know, becomes something viable and successful. That's 40 years of it, of just the NBA alone, obviously. That's not counting everything that came before it or before that. And just all these, you know, little leagues that popped up from region from region and all that stuff that just existed and is lost to time because the NBA still stands alone in terms of pro basketball it's the great i mean that's the other thing that we're talking about too is that it's the every it's a worldwide sport and everybody views the nba as the top flight league in all of the world that doesn't exist in football baseball there's it's more worldwide compared to football but it doesn't have the global coverage in baseball but the sentiment is there obviously in baseball playing regions obviously in japan and places like dominican republic those kind of those kind of hot spots but yeah to your point like basketball is of the north american sports i mean the the other sport that probably comes closest to it is hockey it's it's ice hockey when you look at probably the likes of scandinavia and russia and those kind of areas in particular, where you you may get closer to coverage, but nothing quite, nothing spans like the NBA in terms of North American sports, where you are the elite league, and never more than now that you see this spread of figures, which is also interesting because 
that was not always the case for a whole variety of reasons. Obviously, logistically, being like, who's the best player in France in the 60s and getting them to America? And just none of that stuff is going to happen in the same way. But it is also more and more interesting as the game expands. Listen, I'm I'm a guy from Ireland who's doing this years. I'm talking from Ireland now. And I'm talking about the history of the game. And for example, something that you really put an emphasis on is Larry Costello is someone from Manoa, New York, his small town. Like that matters. He's literally on the map of that town. You know, that's, as you said, you enter, you see his name. That's even more special the wider the game expands, mm-hmm. the longer and the richer the history gets, because this is a history that Larry Costello is going to be in the same place as Nikola Jokic and Giannis and Luka Doncic. And at Larry Costello's time of playing and coaching, that would have been unthinkable. Oh, even look at the, I mean, Manu Ginobili's going in from Argentina. Yeah. I mean, like, that's the, even more so. You're literally spanning the globe, like in terms of exactly. one end to the other with that. I mean, the, the other thing, and I the reason I think part of why we're doing this, why you really wanted to do the, the audio essay on Costello, and I think just people are listening and they're like, that's great. I'm learning about Costello. But I, I do think part of the reason people in Milwaukee should be happy and it should be celebrated. And I it's unfortunate that this is out of season so that the book's weren't even forced into doing more is if you think of the knock on Kareem the knock on Kareem that we hear to this day which is also part of the reason which sparked us into life to do a lot of this which is the idea of screw that guy he left and we we lived in that space with that kind of narrative you know always threatening us over over the horizon with with Giannis, right? And if Giannis left, how do people feel about that? How does all of that happen? The thing with Costello is New York native Larry Costello, he gave himself wholly to Milwaukee. He did everything he could to be like a focal point of the community in Milwaukee and of Milwaukee sports, to be a face of sports in the city. Um We'll talk about all of this again another time, but I don't know if there was a bigger Milwaukee Brewers fan at the time than Larry Costello. You mentioned in the audience, they were bad. Uh, Larry Costello (laughs) was still there. Um, Even before Hank Aaron was there. Him being the coach of the Doe's, the Doe's in their own right, a forgotten area of Milwaukee sports history that every now and then it's great to see there is kind of a a resurgence and people talk about it and go, oh, isn't that cool? And oh, wouldn't it be great if that came back in the, the form of a WNBA team? But again, like Costello at that point in his life, and it's it's interesting, even when he could have been done with Milwaukee, he ends up back in Milwaukee and there's this pull and he was really invested in the city in his time there. To me as the outsider, that is something that I'm fully aware of how important it is to the people of Milwaukee that someone embraces the place as their own. It's part of why Giannis is so loved because he's not just there being like, yeah, the books are good. I'm going to stay here. He speaks with his whole heart, his whole chest about his love for the city, what he wants for the city, what he wants to do and bring to the city. 
and Larry Costello was very much of that vein too. And I think that more than anything, maybe when we list off his accomplishments and we tell his story, that is something that if you are just an average books fan in Milwaukee or in the state of Wisconsin at large, and you're like, well, why should we be really happy when we see this happen and we see the articles pop up around this? That to me is the reason, because this is not just one of two coaches to win a championship for the organization, the first coach in the organization's history, but this is someone who fully adopted and loved Milwaukee and gave himself over to the betterment of Milwaukee sports for a full decade and a crucial decade. The landscape of Milwaukee sports could look nothing like it looks today if it wasn't for a figure like Larry Costello at that time. That, yes. But, I mean, the Bucks may not even exist today if it wasn't for Larry Costello. We, I know we talked about it before, but, like, the reason why that period of the team's history is so important is that Teams can easily come and go. They certainly did during that time. Even when, you know, the, the ABA is trying to fight out the NBA and it's a matter of survival of the fittest. And the timing of winning when the Bucks did and getting Kareem when they did is certainly huge on also Also just, the, just doing it. Take the timing out of it having that and being able to point to that and being like, oh, well, this is an NBA championship winning franchise. That makes it a lot tougher to just sweep that aside. Now, we know it came relatively close and it could have happened anyway. And it didn't save the Sonics, but... It didn't save the Sonics, but to this point of the Sonics, if Seattle could lose its team, Milwaukee could absolutely have lost its team. Yep. And the Bucks were given really kind of a firm footing in the NBA from the jump. They were given a template that even post Kareem, they got to build on and be a really successful and relevant team. And it's what saves the books through a lot of the down years. I've no doubt about it. You've got key decision makers in the league who, when they hear the Milwaukee books, they do not think of the listless teams that they were watching for a lot of the 90s and a lot of the 2000s because they grew up and they saw the teams of the 80s and the teams of the 70s. And I think that's in a a similar way to, for example, I find myself doing this already and we're a long way from it being something that's strung out to that length. When I say San Antonio Spurs, I still have a different association with that franchise than their play in the last few seasons is deserving of because they are not just any other random small market team. They are the San Antonio Spurs, and we have lived through and seen their their glory era. I think there's that's a good comp in terms of no NBA fan could imagine 10 years from now. So I'm just like, you know what? Spurs aren't important. They're gone. Everyone's mm-hmm. like, whoa, the Spurs? The Spurs yeah. were good for so long. My whole this whole log spell my life. The Spurs. You can't just get rid of the Spurs. The Bucks definitely had some of that banked when the product on the court was <laughs> about as bad as it could be. And that matters. And that's Costello at the absolute top end of that. But it's also setting the table so that the decade that follows is equally a very impressive one, if not giving you the ultimate success. Absolutely. All right. That's a lot of Larry Costello. And we're going to have a whole lot more on him 
in the future. Let's talk a little bit more about the two guys going in with Books Connections, the other two. And then I want to talk just generally about books in the Hall of Fame, because I think this is an interesting juncture and we may not be doing this again anytime soon. Um, let's start with Del Harris. Del Harris is a great coach who... I don't know what you think about this. I think he may have inherited one of the toughest, like the time he got that books head coaching job might be one of the toughest times you've got it in the history of the franchise because the team was not very good. The writing was on the wall in terms of age profile, everything, everything was starting to trend in a way that was going to be very, very difficult after over 20 years of success to just keep the show on the road and meet the expectations that have been established from ownership, from players. Adele Harris had been a part of that team in an assistant coaching capacity. Nelson leaves, finds himself following up Don Nelson, which in terms of basketball, in terms of personality, is not an easy task by any means. And although Harris understandably does not match the success of Costello does not match the success of Nelson. He keeps the books, a very competitive, competent team in his four full seasons with the franchise. He makes the playoffs every year. And when we think about the owner in question and the expectations that Herb Cole brought forward and all of the damage that did to the books, Part of me honestly feels like he saw this team and he saw that they could do it and they could find ways to keep going. He went, oh, we can just always do that. And the reality is, no, it takes a coach like Dell Harris to be able to do that. Do you agree with any of that? Do you think that's a fair characterization of the time when he took that job? When, again, the books, with the exception of their very first season, had almost been a juggernaut throughout. You've got their first season where it's not there. You've got immediately post Kareem, although that was a very speedy build, rebuild and turnaround. And then Del Harris is coming in and inheriting older guys, aching guys, a yeah. new look roster, some pieces that weren't there before that have to be made to work. And he fields a very competitive team, 42 wins, 49 wins, 44 wins, 48 wins, and then resigns with an eight and nine record. So even that season could have been a lot better. And honestly, what followed? No, I, I agree completely. I mean, it's not even comparable to when Nelson took over. Cause you can at least say, Oh yeah, you had a young team. Yeah. You had Bob Dandridge on his way out eventually. Cause he left the year after that year ended. There was no young pipeline for that Bucks team that Harris took over after Nelson left. Also more importantly, his first full year is the last year at the Mecca and before the Bradley Center opens. And <laughs> Opian New Stadium, a stadium that the Bucks could call their own, which is... The hockey arena? Is that what you're talking about? A hockey, hockey arena. arena. <laughs> um, but a new stadium nonetheless. You want to be a good team. We saw this with when the Bucks. Got bud and the timing of if you want to you know take the next step you're getting a, a modern facility and one of 
elevate your team and elevate the organization, all this stuff. You can't be a crappy team. Financially, you also just, you've, there's an outlay involved. <laughs> um, we won't get into all the specifics of what percentage of the outlay comes from the team, what percentage comes from public money, but there is an outlay involved that you've got to recoup as such, like right away. And it's playoff basketball is a good way to do that. It's like, let's, let's make sure we've got as many games as possible in our new shiny arena. Yep. And for that, I think that is more symbolic of like, no, we're not going to, this trade doesn't stop and we got to keep it going, especially for given the moment and just where they are. Um, So, yeah, I think, I think the way, I mean, the fact that, it's not even just Del Harris. His son was the GM for four years. And again, at a very interesting point in the franchise history too. So the tentacles of, of the Harris name runs through the books, not just one generation, but two. Um, I think that does, again, it's, it spoke for where the organization was under Herb Cole um, completely. <laughs> But I, at that moment when he takes over, it's not, again, the Bucks are the model franchise. They're not a, a big market team, yet you look at them, they're at the top of the standings for most of their lifetime. Taking over for a team that has Sidney Moncrief and Jack, or yeah, Jack Sigma and um, Terry Cummings was still on the team at the time. Who else? There's someone else that I'm missing. Paul Pressey. Like, yeah. Still greats of the organization it's not an easy it's not an easy job to take over at any any point i think i think you're even selling it short of like franchise history i mean there's not a lot of teams that when you start over i mean look at the utah jazz when you start over you start over you you go to the studs you you tear it down you yeah but down. and and that's the thing is that Bucks fans had not known very much other than a really good team that they would be happy to watch. And also, I think interesting and worth noting, and that is that when Del Harris comes in and has a 42 and 40 record, uh, like we're saying with the benefit of hindsight, like that is very solid and that's keeping the show on the road. But not necessarily felt like that way to Bucks fans at the time because that's not the kind of territory they were used to the franchise being in. But as a first season, and then something they did build on, they just fell one game short of 50 games, 50 wins the next season. That is very, very impressive because even it's one thing to give the names that Del Harris had at his disposal. Like Sidney Moncrief's knees were very, very close to gone at this point. Yep. Um, and Del Harris does ultimately oversee that, that time of transition. But that's that's one of the iconic faces of the franchise like and particularly to that point it is equivalent to coming in right at the end of Giannis's career whoever is going to be unfortunate enough to have that Giannis not quite having what he used to have fans spoiled by what they've watched for a considerable length of time and you coming in and having to try and keep that going you're also rebuilding, but you're also, and so many of the pieces from that era of the books are really interesting and in how it worked out. And good players came in and became better players. And ultimately, their legacies are not books' legacies, 
because of what follows Del Harris and how everything kind of scatters in different directions and honestly some really terrible coaches uh, come in for for a spell there. But he's someone I always feel it it's a tough sell. It's even tougher now that Bud's doing what Bud has done. Mm-hmm. Because you have got top tier undisputed like Hall of Fame coaches. We can we can undoubtedly use that for all of these people, but no question Hall of Famers, it should have been above him anyway, with Costello, with Don Nelson, with Bud down the line. Yep. But Del Harris shouldn't be an afterthought because the team was still really good. Uh, he was also a pretty progressive coach in terms of his basketball ideas, taking a lot of what he learned and was a part of with Don Nelson and expanding it. And the interesting thing here is we're obviously talking from a book's perspective. It's kind of rare that someone will have multiple franchises who will feel some level of ownership. Like he had four seasons with the Rockets, three of which were playoff seasons. Very solid. He got to the NBA finals with the Rockets in 81. So there's going to be real fondness for Dell Harris and good memories of some of that time there. And then, with the Lakers, where he has uh, what I think is actually his longest spell as an NBA head coach, doesn't quite get it done with the Lakers, which that's a tough franchise. I don't know how much Lakers fans are remembering Dell Harris for winning 61 regular season games, such as the joys of being a Laker fan. But again, did a very good job. Um, and wherever he was and through some different and difficult scenarios, Dell Harris always seemed to find a way to get to the playoffs um only missed the playoffs once in his career in seasons where he was in the job by the time the season reached the postseason that is a very impressive yep <laughs> across different teams across decades across three decades i mean he starts he even it's he starts coaching the rockets in 1979 yeah. so that's he's pre-hakeem too yes um he's he's gone before before that so that's a a really interesting career a very very good coach and someone who just definitely feels long overdue but a great books coach too so we're celebrating george carl george carl jordan he was also a coach of the monkey books right george um Look, I I can't I can't speak out two sides of my mouth here. People have listened to this podcast for a long time know how I feel about George Carl. Uh, what I will say, George Carl is undoubtedly one of the great coaches. A coach who was very um, proactive in terms of bringing about interesting stylistic innovations. I think he probably gets credit for some things. The credit may be better distributed in some other places, but that is fitting for his overall presence the overwhelming force of george carl that just kind of swallows everything around them just um yeah i i think this is something that is undeniable kind of surprising that it's happening now but definitely good it's happening now he deserves it from a book's perspective i don't know how to feel on this because honestly, I think, and we've talked about this many times before, my feeling is 
the George Carl books get celebrated way too much. And part of that is because the gap when those previous teams weren't celebrated and then you move through and this is a team that a lot of people who are deeply invested in the books this time to this day, this is the team that's formative for them. This is one of the first tastes of success they remember. But my God, is it maybe the messiest good team? I don't know I said maybe. It is the messiest good team in franchise history. And a big part of that messiness was George Carl. Yes. And part of, of the stature he arrived with and that he's viewed as the franchise savior over Glenn Robinson, the first overall pick. Ray that's Allen an easy, or- that's an easy uh like myth to dispel in that moment though which again i think speaks to the george carl experience yeah another coach could come in at that time and that could be the narrative and that narrative could be killed immediately and it could be no why are you talking about me we've got glenn robertson we've got ray allen this is this is the franchise not me i'm here to get the best from these guys but these are the and that never happened. So, no. in, in fact, attempts were made for the opposite to, yeah. like, the active campaigning to be the face of the franchise, the savior of the franchise. And Cole it, ponied up for him. Yeah. That much multiple times. So, yeah, when you're, when you're put on that pedestal of, hey, we have floundered the last few years, we need success. We The other thing, too, I think, why that Bucks era beyond just making it to the conference finals and missing it by a game or missing the NBA finals by a game. It's the fact that like they weren't good, but they still had Glenn Robinson played eight seasons. Ray Allen before he got traded was around for seven and a half years. Like now you trade those players. You'd be like, okay, we're going to recycle things. Let's try to start from, from scratch. The Bucks hung on to those players in part because the way Herb Cole felt about them and just. Yeah, but there's also, there's a Chris and Giannis post-kid dynamic at play there, which is there's reason for fans, for those within the organization to look at that and be like, we've got major on top potential here. Like these guys are good enough that we can really go and compete at the top end of things. And in some regards, like this is again, this is the book move, and this is you pony up for a coach who more proven when it comes to winning in a very bud way, too. At that time, a regular season, prolific winner, not so much a postseason winner. Bud got that off his back, George Carl never did. And we're gonna change things around. This is flipping the switch. I think the thing with Carl, though, which makes it really difficult, is. He built up the team, built up the team that had underachieved. He also destroyed it with a wrecking ball before leaving. And that's part of when you talk about Costello and you talk about Don Nelson, and even when you talk about Del Harris, I think part of a great coach's legacy, and this speaks to Carl and his journey being difficult, we'll say, and interesting with all of his franchises is there is no disputing how great he was in Seattle with the Sonics 
there is also a reason why he leaves the Sonics at the time he does come to the books because every single place he went it never ended smoothly it never ended nicely it never ended in a way that the next guy is inheriting a great situation and I mean that even kind of goes through to his more recent stuff when you look he built a really good Nuggets team that was overperforming to a level that in a lot of ways didn't have a right to post Carmelo Anthony look what you've done look how this is working when he leaves are the Nuggets ready to just kick on right up jump up a level absolutely not every team he leaves ends up in a worse spot if not then when he came in certainly much much worse than the heights he reached which is interesting part of that is always the cycle for a coach but Sometimes a coach just kind of, I don't know, they're, uh, they wear out their welcome. Yep. Their message doesn't land and a new voice can come in and all of a sudden the players can rediscover something that wasn't there for the coach and the same team or the bones of the same team can be great again. The bones are gone with George Carl's there because he'll, he'll yeah. get rid of them. He'll, he'll set the place on fire. He's like, I, if I'm going down, I'm taking this whole place down with me, which I think is like, it makes his induction fascinating. The one thing we should mention, we haven't mentioned who's presenting some of these people. So um, right. I'll, I'll save Carl the best for last because there is certainly one presenter in there which speaks to the George Carl books experience. Um, Del Harris being presented by Nancy Lieberman, John Calipari and Sidney Moncrief representing his time with the books. Um, Larry Costello is being presented by Billy Cunningham, Wayne Embry, and Bob Dandridge. Two key books representatives there. Um, George Carl is being presented by Roy Williams, Bobby Jones, and Gary Pate. And Gary Pate. <laughs> Which is fitting because yeah. Gary Payton is like obviously their great success together in Seattle, and for as much as it's true of Carl and Carl has some other good moments, Gary Payton, the player, is is remembered for his time with George Carl in Seattle. Yeah, but also Carl just kind of you have to drag him along a little bit further, and he had to had to do things where their two careers are interestingly intertwined, nowhere more so. Than in the city of Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I think that's where I, I'm just going to leave Is it. At this yeah. point, I press play on your audio essay on George Carl. Yes. And it just is. Uh, House Crickets? of Horrors. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, again, well deserved. He, the fact that we're talking about three different teams that he at least had some modicum of success, you cannot say that about a coach. I mean, what is he third in all-time wins now, behind Pop and Nelson, or is it Ford? I forgot how uh, close he got. No, I think I think it's a minimum. I'll, I'll I'll find out here. Will you? You keep singing George Carl's praises. Go on. You, I don't want to stop you from six, saying all Six. Behind uh, Pop, Nelson, Lenny Wilkins, Jerry Sloan, and Pat Riley. All of whom are in the Hall of Fame, or will be in the Hall of Fame, in Pop's case. 
but yeah, like did a lot of things, left a mark in uh, both positive and negative ways across a long time. But the fact that that, that is what is so interesting is that like you see the carnage that he actively had a hand in making across Seattle, across Milwaukee, and it did not stop him from getting jobs with the Bucks, with the yeah, Nuggets. Because he'd bring a the franchise to a very respectable place. And ultimately, and I, this is very much, I think, a Herb Cole thing. The NBA cycle means you're probably going to be bad eventually at some point. Yep. So the trade-off of, oh, well, this coach will make us good. He will probably eventually also make us bad for a while, but that could happen anyway. So let's get somebody who can make us good. Like, I think the interesting thing when you talk through his place in terms of most... NBA regular season wins. He has more wins than Phil Jackson. Which is an interesting counter. I know we can again point to the individual players. George Carl did not get to coach Michael Jordan. Um, but Carl, part of his magic is his longevity. And part of that magic is that teams continue to go back in for it because. I mean, the book was out as well documented by the time a franchise like the Kings, which of all the teams, I guess maybe for them, it made more sense of, hey, if this guy can do for us what he's done everywhere else, if we get the good time, it would be worth it. And they did not get the good time. Um, undeniably a great, great NBA coach. Just one that it's going to be, it's going to be weird everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere where you think he's being celebrated. I don't know how any of those fan bases are going to feel about it. <laughs> I mean, the fan base still exists, but the team does not in one case, one big case. Yeah, so but I, even... I don't know how those people, the people who watch that, I mean, maybe in that scenario, you'll be really happy because just any chance to celebrate what was your team. Anyone's going to also... I don't know. I don't know either. George Carl is a tough one. All right. To wrap it up here, um, this really could be it for a long time for the Bucks. I'd like to think not. I'd like to think that Marcus Johnson's time comes because he's very, very close. I'm not, not seeing that right now. Which is pretty brutal hopefully one way or another like so many others he gets in eventually but to the other point now would be the nice time to do it when he can fully soak in the adulation of it all and take the victory lap that getting your place in the hall of fame inevitably brings um Pau Gasol is going to be a hall of famer with books ties he's going to be the next one Jordan's connection to Pau Gasol's era with the books that is officially what's called, right? The Pogasol era um, are stronger than probably anyone else's. Uh, Pow being just the gentleman that he is, I'm sure at the time will probably spend five minutes in a speech thanking like the people of Milwaukee and the books. Um, John Horse. <laughs> but really, that is it. That is, that is going to be it, it feels, until we get to Giannis. We get the bud. 
and maybe we get to Chris and Drew and their conversations that I guess the book has yet to be written on that. We've got to see what the books can do in the next few years, what those guys could do in an international setting if they get the opportunity to do that again. But that's going to be a long way. And I think that will speak to something we've already talked about here in terms of <laughs> the thing is that weight is honestly very close to the weight that books fans had to watch good basketball again. So this is natural when you look at the barren era, the drought that the books went through. We're now going to have an equivalent length drought without Hall of Famers because there were not Hall of Famers around the organization at that time. But I think by the time it comes around, one, things could be good, things could be bad for the books. There'll be a lot of perspective and I think a real change for maybe some people that were hoping we get your attention today that right now you're like, I don't care about former books people, I don't care what books figures are in the Hall of Fame. It's not impossible that after this weekend and after a brief mention of Pau Gasol's time with the books that we'll all laugh about when that happens, that the next time a books figure is getting in the Hall of Fame, it could be Giannis. It could be Bud. So if you don't care now, when we do a podcast in like, I don't know, 2038, 48, I can't even, I don't know what kind of time. Oh, Giannis, Giannis will be, that's the thing too, is players rather than coaches, the turnaround is very quick. Yeah. And when we talk about like three coaches getting in late in the day, that's just kind of how the system is structured. You're a player, you're of Giannis's caliber. Like, if for some reason Giannis decided to retire today, two years from now, Giannis is getting in. Like, that's that is already his place is set. Two years from his retirement, he will be going into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, but we'll see how that shakes out. But it feels like him or Bud is next in terms of certainties where the presentation is going to very meaningfully be about the Milwaukee books, maybe more than anything else. Yep. Absolutely. I, I don't, I don't see Jeff Teague or uh, PJ Tucker as much as they have made a, a long career in the NBA. I don't see it uh, happening. Yeah. It very, it's it very well be the earliest 15 years. That's a long time. That's a long time, which makes it even more so that it's on the teams to celebrate the players that uh, have elevated your franchise. And you could say, hey, we had this many Hall of Famers. Because that's the other thing. I I would want to go through like all the Hall of Famers that have made or been on teams, NBA teams. The Bucks are up there. It's They're certainly up there. I mean, outside of like Lakers and Celtics, yeah, there's not going to be a whole bunch of teams. No. Part of that is I feel like the books are unusually inflated by some of the really random oh, yeah. Hall of Fame members. I'm talking about your Tiny Archibalds, your Adrian Dantley's, Alex English, uh, Moses Cowles. Malone, Gary Payton, of course, Dave Counts. Like that's kind of part of the book story too, is there was a spell, which again, also the reason that doesn't happen. The reason those guys aren't going to bridge this next gap is because you used to get great 
I mean, a couple of exceptions there. Alex English obviously being a book at the start of his career, not getting playing time, and then going to Denver and becoming the Alex English who becomes a Hall of Famer. But someone like Dantley, for example, or Moses Malone, they go to the books later in their career, and they're more likely to do that because the books are the books. They're one of the NBA's most consistently great franchises. It's kind of a dignified place to go to end your career, where that was not the case throughout the 2000s and the 2010s, which is going to feed into the gap we have here. And it's why, for example, someone like Pau Gasol will factor into that because, again, the books become good and you get a similar to a Moses Malone kind of situation or an Adrian Dantley situation. But, yeah, I don't know. That is that is interesting. And as for the organization, it's like you got to build your own mythology here for where your place is within the NBA. And if you want to be one of the biggest franchises in the NBA, which the books are right now based on their production, but you can make that stick if you want to. Part of that is you've got a real history. You've got some great teams. You've got some absolutely iconic all-time players. Now is the time to really big it up. Well, the team is great. Well, interest is at its peak while you can draw parallels because not only do you elevate your team of the past, but you also, by association, you're pumping up the team of the present. You're, it's something we talk about all the time is, you know, the team of the past matters because we're watching a great books team now that is going to matter in a similar way down the line. Yeah. We will continue to beat the drum. Don't know if we're anywhere within earshot just yet for the books to act on it. But listen, we're working on it. Things are, things are happening. Things are the works. This is, to even call this the first taster would probably be a real exaggeration on just how much is going to come down the line. Um, but we care about this. We think all of you should. And we, we honestly, we think the Milwaukee books should. And I don't blame any individual fan who's not always invested in this because it's up to the team to tell the story and get you invested in it. It's up to the team to get you to care about it beyond just being whatever 15 players are on a roster in a given year. So hopefully we see more of that. If not, Jordan and I will just, we'll keep <laughs> in vain. We'll be shouting into the darkness, into the nighttime, hoping someone comes to our call. Um, but yeah, for now, a nice little taster of some books history talk for us. And a few days to celebrate, particularly for Larry Costello, but also for Dale Harris. And even for George Carl. Jordan, are you excited about the new book season? I know we said we do some position by position stuff, which you haven't got around to yet. In part because we're working on stuff like this um, yes. behind the scenes, particularly in Jordan's case. But some more regular coverage, I think, will be clocking in very obviously for us on Win Six very soon. So are you excited for that too? I am. I think that's also, it gets doing or having the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies um, kind of ramps me back up into thinking about basketball in the present day. <laughs> so it kind of gets me excited. I know Eurobass is going on, but time-wise, I have not been able to see anything outside of just Yacht and this dominating. It's always good to see. But yeah, I am I'm getting there. Yeah, getting there. We may... We'll, we'll see how schedules and everything align. We may have some more Eurobasket stuff that we'll talk about as that competition goes on. Kind of feels like Giannis is going to give us plenty of opportunity anyway. He might give us <laughs> maximum opportunity to talk about how good he's doing there. 
let's hope so for Giannis. Let's hope so for Tanasis. Let's hope so for Greece. Um, but yeah, we'll be back to you all very, very soon. So as all, as always, even, um, to make sure you never miss an episode of Win in Six, you'll also catch every episode of Eurostep with Ty and Rohan. Subscribe to the Eurostep Podcast Network wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have plenty of stuff of the regular variety, but we also do things like this pretty regularly in one form or another too. And we have big plans, big things in the works that will give you more of this in the future. So subscribe. Uh, you should also check out the rest of the Eurostep Podcast Network shows. Talk of the Tundra, Packer season is right upon us. Jordan Tresky is ready to unleash the beast. It's got to be it's going to be different. There's going to be a different version of Jordan Tresky on microphone soon. I promise it. I think it's, I think it's coming close. Uh, actually, maybe by the time you've heard this. Possibility, Jordan. Possibility people Possibly. might have heard you Possibly. talk Packers. So we'll, we'll see how all of that plays out. Very excited for the Packers to get underway. Um, if you really hate yourself and you like to suffer... There is also a podcast about the Milwaukee Brewers co-hosted by myself and Andrew Snyder called Cruising for a Bruising. We are soldiering on through the Brewers season in spite of what kind of lead they decide to blow to what kind of crappy team. We'll be there. We'll be talking about it. At the end of every series, we recap all the action. We look ahead. We update you on where things are in the standings. And we dream of a brighter day. Also... Uh, well, let's we just dream of a brighter day. We'll leave it at that. Also, we've got our podcast for pop culture and other things on the network called Make Time for This. Uh, myself and Andrew will be talking about House of the Dragon and the new Lord of the Rings show on the next episode. Again, by the time you're listening to this, it might just be in that podcast feed. So go subscribe, Make Time for This, and you'll get all sorts of TV, movie talk, and a whole lot more from Andrew and I, but also the whole gang are going to be involved as time goes on. That's pretty much everything. If you have any other questions, you can find us on Twitter at winin6podcast. That's numerical value six. I'm at Adam E11. Jordan's at Jordan Tresky. You can go to gspon.info where you get links to the Discord, links to the store, all of that good stuff. And if you really like what you hear, five-star ratings and reviews, as always, very much appreciated. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.